Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode eight in the book of Hebrews, Entering God's Rest, where Pastor Andy Davis and I, Joel Harford, discuss Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. Andy, we're moving through the book of Hebrews, and we just got done with a huge warning in chapter 3 to take heed and hear the voice of the Lord, not to harden our hearts. And now the author talks about entering God's rest. Can you give us a brief overview of, of this section? Yeah, this is a very powerful section. Again, uh, we would put it in the category of a warning because uh, he says, let us fear. So there's a sense of warning in these verses to people who have heard the gospel but who have not come over into saving faith in Christ. That's really what the author is talking about. And he uses the what I would call the type or shadow of Sabbath rest as a picture of salvation in Christ. And the warning here is it's not enough to hear the gospel. It's not enough to understand the words of the gospel. You have to combine it with faith. You have to trust in Christ and cross over from death to life. And if that hasn't happened yet, uh, you should be afraid. Uh, There's a, a deep fear that the author is trying to put into his hearers that it's not enough to have heard the gospel. They need to combine it with faith in Christ. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, he again appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, Andy, I know you already mentioned this in the preliminary comments, but what is what does it mean to enter his rest? Well, that is the question here in this text. And uh, he's again continuing uh, over chapter 3 and 4, an extended meditation on Psalm 95, which King David wrote, I don't know, about 1000 BC. And he's going to make that, that argument about when the promise of entering the rest fell into Jewish history. It was well after creation, of course. It was well after uh, the Exodus was well after the, the law was given concerning the Sabbath. Long after that, there's still a Sabbath rest. And so he's meditating on Psalm, Psalm 95 and pulls out that warning. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And what the author to, to the Hebrews wants them to hear is the promise. He wants them to hear the promise. There is a Sabbath rest. Come over into that rest. And now in the New Covenant, we know exactly what that means. By faith in Christ, come over into rest for your souls. Mm-hmm. I can't help but, but just hear Jesus' beautiful invitation in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So there's that invitation to come into salvation, to faith in Christ. So that's what the author wants them to do. And he wants them here, he's using fear. Uh, you know, the alternative is basically rest or wrath. It's, there's, no other, there's no third option here. You're either going to come over into the rest in Christ or you're going to experience God's anger, his wrath. So then to just apply that directly to us, the promise of entering his rest is still standing. It's still right. open. Sure. Yeah, I think in that case, for we who have already believed, there's still a rest that remains. Now, we could argue that, that there's a rest that we could experience every day, and I think that's a valid interpretation here, that, that we should be experiencing the peacefulness in our souls that comes from knowing that our works are completed in Christ, that we don't have to earn anything. We can rest in our justification. We can rest in our imputed righteousness by faith in Christ. The idea here would be Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's rest, but you have to experience that rest. There is a peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 talks about that. Give all of your concerns to God in prayer. And, and give it up to him and, and let him be, in the language of this chapter, you know, your great high priest who takes your burdens and, and it's a time of need. So you can have a restfulness in your soul now. And then there's a final eternal rest that's still ahead of all of us. And that's heaven. It's basically the, the future final rest of the, the, true, the, the true crossing of the Jordan, which is death and resurrection into resurrection bodies. That's a yet future rest that still remains for the people of God. Right. Now, he, he exhorts them to fear lest they seem to fail to reach it. And then he draws a connection between this audience and the, the disobedient generation in the wilderness. And we talked about that for the last couple of weeks. Sure. Um, but, but regarding this good news, how did they both hear the good news? And what were the disastrous consequences for the people in the wilderness? And how is that a warning for us today? Right. Well, the good news is the promise. You know, there is a rest available. I'm offering you a rest. That's the good news. Um, and so with that uh, promise still there, still valid, um, then we have this example in the Old Testament of people who had a similar promise. I would use that language with the type or shadow of the physical promised land being extended to them as a type or shadow of the final rest in Christ. They, it was offered to them, but look what they did with it. They didn't believe it. They came right to the brink of the Jordan and when the ten spies uh, came back and, and saw that it was a good land, the, the, the land flowing with milk and honey, it's a beautiful rest that God was giving them, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that they could take it. Uh, they looked inward and tried to find the resources to conquer the Canaanites. Uh, they had walls, the Anakites, the walls up to the skies, and so they were afraid, and they did not look to God. They didn't believe. They didn't trust in Him. And look what happened to them. God said, then you won't enter it. And he poured out his wrath on them for a generation. In, in a very wise way, he killed them slowly so that there could be a ne the next generation, children raised and, and ready, and their children did enter. But that generation didn't, except for Joshua and Caleb. They all died, their bodies were scattered in the desert. And so that's the fear. Look what happened to them. That's what uh, the Psalm 95, what David's doing. So look what happened to that generation. I was angry with that generation. And I swore on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And they didn't. Well, that was just physical. This is even more. This is like a how much more argument the author uses. The, the stakes are infinitely higher now in the New Covenant. The rest we're talking about is heaven. And if we shrink back from that, if we turn back 
from crossing over by faith into Christ. Nothing remains, the author is going to tell us, except basically hell. Uh, destruction. He's going to make that point clearly later on. So that's the fear here. He's trying to give them fear. It's not okay to turn back from entering rest in Christ. Hmm. Okay, so the next part of this verse, it says, they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's what the ESV says. Uh, what does this mean, and do you have any insight on how we should translate this verse? Yeah, this is actually a difficult translation issue. Um, we are blessed in the English language with uh, many reputable translations. There's, there's a historically significant translation in the King James Version, and that's, that's going to be with us, I think, as long as the English language stands. Just a masterpiece of scholarship, of translation, beginning with William, William Tyndale, one of the greatest linguists in history. And then the Puritans came along and, and uh, you know, under, in the time of King James, basically did uh, a Puritan Bible, effectively, and did a phenomenal job translating. Now, there's a couple problems with the King James. One is that our language has changed, and so there's some vocabulary and grammar we don't use anymore. So it you know, takes some learning. And also, they were uh, using newer manuscripts. And there's a whole bunch of manuscript debates that go on with that, and I'm not getting into that here. But the King James remains a phenomenally accurate and helpful translation. But since that time, in our lifetime, there have been so many good English translations. You know, the RSV, the NIV 84, which I use, um, the New American Standard uh, Version or Standard Bible, NASB, uh, ESV uh, has come in recently. Many people are using it. And so we're blessed. Uh, I'm just saying, being in Japan, when I was a missionary there, they had two translations. One of them was done by the Catholic Church, and the other one was about 150 years old. And similar to the King James, the language had changed, and it's hard, hard for modern Japanese to read. That's it. They had nothing else. And uh, I don't know if Wycliffe is planning on doing a modern Japanese translation, but when you realize that 1% evangelical, there's just not a lot of Japanese Christians, it may not be high on their priority uh, list. We are incredibly blessed. Like every five to seven, eight years, a new translation comes out, like the Holman Christian Standard Bible, some others, they just keep coming out. Well, what ends up happening is you line up these translations side by side, and they just read differently sometimes from each other. Sometimes it's just a matter of phraseology slightly, you know, synonyms, that kind of thing. Sometimes they just have different meanings, and that's what you get here. The ESV is just has a different meaning than the KJV uh, and, then, and the NIV 84. NIV 84 and KJV and New American Standard Bible all say one thing, and the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard, the CSB, say something else. So there's two different ways of reading this. So ESV says, um, I'll just read it. Uh, it says, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they, the people, were not united by faith with those who listened. So the idea here is that those people didn't join the company of believers, I think is what the ESV is effectively saying. And then and that's valid because later he's going to talk about the great cloud of witnesses. Uh, the people who were, were believers, the people of faith. There's a whole chapter on that later, so that's valid. Um, so it didn't benefit them because they didn't come over and join the company of believers. But I think it's better to look at it the way the KJV does. And the, and the key word here is mingle. There's a, it says combine in the NIV or mixed in the KJV, united here in the ESV. That, those are all good translations. There's a, a long Greek word here, which means to combine or mix or mingle two things uh, or join them, join them together. <clears throat> so two things are being joined and it's negated. So something was not joined. So the ESV and the CSB says the people were not joined with the company of believers. But the alternate translation would be 
because they, the people, the ones who heard the good, the promise, did not combine that word of promise with faith. So the, the chemistry of salvation here is the word of God, the promise, plus faith equals salvation. And if you don't add faith to the word, it will do you no good. And I think in this context, since the author goes on to talk about the word of God being living and active, his focus is on the word. His focus is on, on the promise. I think it's better to go with the KJV, NIV 84, and uh, New American Standard. The idea is it didn't do them any good to have that promise because they didn't unite that promise in their hearts with faith. Yeah, well, that's, that's really helpful to think about because it, it helps us in you know, hearing the word of God is that I want to actively take the knowledge I'm receiving and I want to immediately unite it with faith and not be a passive hearer. Right. Uh, so essentially, showing up does you no good if you yeah. don't unite it with faith. Yeah, let me say one, one more thing about the translation. It's, it's always difficult because you've got uh, just skilled brothers and sisters that are excellent at translating. They just have lingui- lingui- uh, linguistic gifts. Um, and they, whenever you do a translation, you're really doing to some degree an interpretation. You're, you're doing exegesis as you try to render decisions on these kinds of things. And usually it's between two good things. And so we've got two good things going on here, but we're going to get to that theme later. Hey, let's join the company of the believers, the cloud of witnesses. We'll get there. But here for us, the takeaway is whenever you hear the word, that living and active word, combine it with faith. Don't harden your heart, but hear what the Holy Spirit's saying and, and trust in the promise. That's the, the exhortation here. Mm-hmm. Now, what about this phrase, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world? How does this fit into the author's train of thought? Because he says, well, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's, just, it's a challenging concept here. The idea is, what is the rest that David was writing about? That's what the author's meditating on. So David you know, is dropped into redemptive history at 1000 BC, and he's writing this, uh, this psalm and, and uses the word today. So it's like, no, this is half a millennium later than uh, the Ten Commandments. This is obviously much after God created the world. And so um, there's a sense in which there is a completion by God on the seventh day of physical creation. And uh, so God finished all that he had made and he saw that it was very good and he declared that it was very good. And he, he set apart that seventh day and called it holy. Uh, the, that was his Sabbath rest. And it's a sense of him almost not resting out of exertion like he was tired. God never gets tired. But the sense that he was satisfied with his work. It was perfect for what he was trying to achieve. Now, he knew there was yet more to come. He knew there would be a new heaven, new earth. He knew there would be a new Jerusalem. He knew all that was coming. But at that moment, what he was trying to do was completed. It was perfect. His works were finished from that time. And so that's what the author is saying, that God was satisfied and he was, he was complete with his work. So uh, God's works have been finished since, since that point. But that doesn't mean there's not yet more work to come. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, as we go verse by verse, we want to try to understand the careful contours of the author's argument. He then says, you know, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then he repeats it. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. And then he makes an argument. Since therefore it remains, for some to enter it, 
and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of unbelief, excuse me, disobedience, he again appoints a certain day today. And then he quotes, he quotes David again. So what is the author's train of thought here, and, and how does this really you know, crescendo into this, into this uh, huge warning about the Sabbath rest? Sure. The author is really doing very careful exegesis on Psalm 95. And he's saying, look, logically, there has to be some Sabbath rest yet to come. And it can't refer to the original physical creation because David wrote that long after that was done. So the timeline matters. The timeline matters. And it can't refer to the command, the fourth uh, commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's not talking about the Sabbath rest that the Jews followed under the law of Moses because that was 500, 400, 500 years ago. So he, he is speaking about something that still remains. And the author says it twice in this section. There still remains, remains. It's not there yet. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying is, because he's talking to Jews, to Jewish people, he's saying, you all know about the Sabbath. We do it every, every week. There is a yet future Sabbath that we haven't entered yet. And what could that be? David is alluding to it because he wrote after Moses, long after Moses. What is the Sabbath rest that still remains? And so he's going line by line. For he says, again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. And David thinks that's a valid thing. They've already crossed the Jordan. They're living in the promised land. There's still a rest that remains. They uh, observe the Sabbath uh, every, every day. Back in the days of King David, there's still a Sabbath rest that remains. What is it? It's Jesus. It's salvation. That's what the author's doing here. So he says there, there remains this thing. So since the promise remains for some to enter it, since the, therefore it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formally received the good news didn't enter through disobedience, there's the warning. There's still a rest ahead of us, Jewish brothers and sisters, he's saying, the author of Hebrews. There's still, we're still in danger, actually. And this is even bigger than that ever was. We need to learn the lessons of our Jewish forebears who didn't enter the promised land. And we need to fear. The whole thing's about fear here. Let us fear that we don't enter the rest. But he has to prove that there's still a Sabbath rest remaining. And he does it by a chronology. When David wrote Psalm 95, he was talking about in his day, a yet future Sabbath rest was yet to come. And he said, let's not be like they did who heard and did not believe. Right. So to, to make your point, the, the next verse, verse 8 says... If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the rest Joshua brought them into, it was really only a type and shadow. It wasn't the real deal. Yeah, and you're using the language of type and shadow. And I mentioned that at the beginning of our podcast today. That language is going to come in hugely later in chapter 9 of this book, of the book of Hebrews. And type and shadow means something that God set up in history, in Jewish history, that in some way acts out physically uh, the future spiritual reality of the gospel in Christ and heaven and other aspects. So there's, there's like heavenly realities or future realities. And then there's something physical right now, at least back then right now, that you can act out and be part of that, that gives us a physical symbol of something yet to come. So the tabernacle slash temple was a type and a shadow. The animal sacrificial system was a type and a shadow of Christ. Uh, the tabernacle, a type and shadow of the heavenly um, tabernacle or, or holy of holies in the heavenly realms, the author's going to give us. And then the, the promised land itself, the land flowing with milk and honey, is a type and shadow of heaven. Crossing the Jordan is a type and shadow of coming into faith in Christ 
or dying and being resurrected in a resurrection body, either way, because there are two stages, you know, that we're looking at there. But to cross over into the promised land, to enter into the physical rest that Joshua led them in, that was just a type or shadow, something acted out in history that it gives us a symbol of the future spiritual reality. So let me, let me uh, just link that to spiritual verses in the New Testament very clearly when Jesus says in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So there it is. It's not enough to hear. Got to combine it with faith. Whoever hears my word plus believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's Jordan. Crossed over. Crossed yeah. over. That's Jordan River language. You've crossed over into the rest there is, and that is forgiveness of sins. Hmm. That's really helpful in just reading the Old Testament, understanding what the purpose of you know God acting out redemptive history for us is really to point to our future salvation. It is, and and I think th- there's there's just so much more we could say about this. The the physical promised land is a type and shadow of a physical future promised land. We're going to be in a physical world, and so it's it's not just you know metaphysical. Um, there there is we're actually going to have n- new earth ground under our resurrection feet. And so they lived in a land. They actually ate food from the promised land. And so that's a type and shadow of a yet physical future reality we're going to have. But here's, here's the point. Joshua didn't finish the job. I mean, he did what he needed to do. But there is a yet future Sabbath rest that's far more significant than that one ever was. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's appropriate to connect this to Matthew 5, where Jesus is preaching and he says, you know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, hmm. this Sabbath rest and this land it. that you've been talking about. I had not been thinking about that, but that, yeah, I love it. Uh, that's the, the future rest we're going to come into. Now, let me say one thing about the Sabbath itself. I'm not, we're not going to get into Sabbatarianism or Sabbath observances. The, the theological heritage that I've followed the most, the Reformed theological heritage, uh, the Puritans uh, following John Calvin were very strong Sabbatarians, really. Um, and they believe that the, the Sabbath, uh, the one day in seven, set apart completely unto God for his service and his worship in a special way, uh, was one of the Ten Commandments and therefore clearly a lasting binding regulation on the hearts of Christians. It's moved over from the seventh day to the first day. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon entitled The Perpetuity and Change of the Sabbath Regulation. And so there's a permanent aspect and then there's a change aspect. There is way too much for us to talk about here because Jesus did a whole bunch of things on the Sabbath that he was not supposed to do. And the Sabbath was not made for man, but man man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for man. And there's all kinds of things we can say. What I want to say is this, whatever you believe, and I'm going to use the language, frankly, of Romans 14, whatever you believe about one day and seven, because he was writing to Roman Christians who some of them were Jews and some were Gentiles and some of them had a pattern of a one day and seven and the pagans uh, that, that were converted didn't. And I think he basically says, look, whatever you believe about this, you know, do it by faith. You know, uh, keep between yourself and God, as Romans 14. So we could go on and on about it. What I would say is this. It is practically helpful to have that one day in seven. It is actually vital for our faith to unite with other Christians. And God has providentially given us this Sunday um, where we get to meet in a local church. And I would strongly urge that, but without a legalistic tint to it, so that if you don't do it, you, you know you're not a Christian. That, that just goes over into legalism that I think is very unhelpful. But there is a, 
a, uh, a flowering of the Sabbath rest for us in Christ that, that this chapter points to. The real Sabbath rest is not what you do on Sunday. It's your personal faith in Christ and the peace you have with God through faith in Christ. And there's a future to it, and that's a resurrection in the new heaven, new earth. That's the final Sabbath rest for all of us. Okay, so you're talking about what the Sabbath rest means for us. Verse 10, it says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works mm-hmm. as God did from his. Yeah. What does it mean that you know, he has rested from his works as God did from his? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a challenge uh, to try to understand this because he's going to say in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Work, so, work to rest. Yeah, yeah work, work to rest. So um, I think that, again, so many times we come again and again to the relationship between justification and sanctification. So in justification, by faith in Christ, we rest from all of our labors. Uh, in terms of trying to earn forgiveness, trying to earn the pleasure of God. You have as much uh, pleasure, positionally, pleasure from God as you can ever have. God is as pleased with you as he ever could be because you are in Christ. And so in that sense, we have ceased from our labors. We have entered perfection. By one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't that interesting? So that's justification language. We are, we are perfect forever, but we are also being sanctified gradually. And so there's the striving. Later the author is going to give us the image of running a race. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race marked out before us. Let us strive to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There is still a striving in the Christian life. There's, a, there's an effort and he's going to say that in verse 11, let us strive, therefore. But there is the whole time you're striving, you're at rest. You know you can't improve your position. You can't be any more forgiven than you are. You can't be any more righteous positionally than you are. You can't be any more adopted than you are. You can't be any more secure than you are. None of your works improve any of those things. Your position is perfect. So you have entered into God's perfect rest by faith in Christ. So there's that combination. There is you have entered and you are perfect in justification. So now strive to be perfect in your everyday life through holiness. And all this language of, of rest and ceasing from works, it, uh, it's, it's bringing my mind back to Genesis where part of the curse was you're going to toil all the days of your life. Yeah. And they, essentially rest was yanked from them. Sure. And now Christ is restoring it. Yeah, it's a curse. Basically, you're going to strive and wrestle with the earth and you're going to lose. You're going to wrestle your whole life, and in the end, you're going to end up in the grave. So that is a curse. Uh, Jesus has taken the stinger out of that. Now instead, our striving for holiness is going to be consummated in perfect holiness. So any effort you made toward growing in holiness will be rewarded on Judgment Day and consummated in heaven. So the striving now is not futile. It is actually the very thing the Holy Spirit's doing in us, striving for our holiness. But here's the thing. There is a, a, a peace that we should realize we have all the time. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as I mentioned you know, a few minutes ago, there also should be a peacefulness in our hearts, like God is characterized by peace. God's not a roiling, challenged, you know, divided being who's up there wringing his hands and not knowing what to do. Uh, he's just completely at peace with himself. He is harmonious with himself. I'm going to start sounding like an Eastern mystic here, but God is absolutely at peace within himself all the time. And we can enter into that aspect of God. We can be at peace in ourselves. Even while we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we still can be at peace knowing that God is at peace with us. Amen. That is beautiful.
I'm going to strive to enter that rest. <laughs> Me too. Well, that was episode eight in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time, and we'll talk about possibly one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible that talks about the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.